Uh, we can ask the question, how important is religion uh, for nationalism? And what, what's the relationship between these two? Sometimes people mix them up. Maybe they are similar. Maybe they should be treated as similar. So that's, that's one question we might ask. Uh, but I'm going to treat them as somewhat distinct for the purposes of this lecture. So when I speak about religion, then, uh, the reason that I would differentiate religion from, from nationalism is that for religion, it, in addition to having the communal or tribal function, which it does to some extent, it also has a um, spiritual or otherworldly connection. So perhaps a, a conception of the supernatural and the cosmos and the relationship of an individual to the supernatural, which is not necessary for nationalism, actually. Um, there are different conceptions of religion. So Emile Durkheim has a conception of religion that says, well, actually, religions are just about building community. They're not really about the supernatural. Uh, that is another view. And that actually brings nationalism very close to religion. So Durkheim's view of the French Revolution and its symbolism was really that that, that kind of symbolism was very close to what we mean by religion. Um, in this lecture, I'm going to treat a number of different aspects of religion and try and see how they relate to nationalism and ethnicity. So I'll begin by talking about religious texts. Then I'll move on to religious practices and rituals and religious uh, religion as cultural marker. And then finally, we'll talk about uh, religious actors such as churches, mosques, clergymen, etc., priests, and the way they can. And then finally, we'll talk about this relationship between religion and nationalism. Does religion is religion anti-nationalist, or is it does it actually reinforce nationalism? Uh, so we'll ask that question. Just begin with religious texts, and uh, those of you who are familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, again, this is something that is sometimes used uh, to show a relationship between religion and ethnicity because the Tower of Latin Babel is all about the dangers of people speaking different languages. So it has some sort of a link to, link to or perhaps an anti-nationalist message. Um, but then there are, we'll see there are other passages that are very different. Uh, one of the ways in which theorists of nationalism, if you look at modernist writers like Benedict Anderson or Ernest Gellner, uh, but particularly ben Benedict Anderson would say, well, the way that religion operates is totally different from the way nations operate, because religions have annual events, such as Christmas or Lent or these rituals, which occur every year and are kind of timeless. They just sort of occur in what Anderson would call circular time, and originally they sprang from the rituals of the harvest and the seasons. And so that this idea of seasonal rituals convey a sense of timelessness and immortality, which is a sort of bulwark against the fear of death. Uh, whereas for nationalism and nations, their conception of time is more linear. That is, there's, there have been, let's say, it's the 200th anniversary of the 
French Revolution or the American Revolution. That quantity of time is measured precisely in terms of annual numbers of years. So all of these dates and commemorations, which are key for nationalists, they're not key for religions. Religions don't usually have these kinds of chronological commemorations and centennials and bicentennials, which are sort of characteristic of nationalism. So that is one way in which, perhaps, that sense of time is different. It's linear in the sense of, of nations and, and circular for religions. That's one way people have um, distinguished that. Uh, but it's also the case, though, that religion can intertwine with nationalism. So you can get the, the sanction from the other world, from God, reinforcing the righteousness of a people, a particular nation. And in that sense, you can get a reinforcement between these two concepts. And so anyway, in the religious text, what you find are a number of references to peoples, tribes, nations, ethnic groups. That in itself is very interesting from the perspective of nationalism. So what then do these texts have to say about different groups? So there's many different references. Well, one is an explanation of why there are different faiths, such as the Tower of Babel explanation. Um, but you also have passages in holy texts that some people would argue give birth to ideas of ethnicity and nationalism. So for example, in particular, the Old Testament and the Jewish Bible is seen as being important because of what it has to say about chosenness, or what's known as election, this idea that a certain ethnic group or a certain nation have been chosen or selected by God to do God's work on earth. So this phrase in Leviticus, uh, be my holy people because I, the Lord, am holy. I've separated you from other people to be my very own. That idea of being a chosen people is an important one because it suggests that it's just the religion is not necessarily applying equally to all people, but rather you have a chosen people, uh, in this case the Israelites. Uh, or in the Old Testament as well, there is talk about particular territory, in this case a holy land. Quote, all the children of Israel went out, the congregation was gathered together as one man from Dan to Beersheba. Now Dan and Beersheba are places that can be located today and actually are used by religious nationalists in Israel as coordinates, as a kind of mental map for where the Holy Land is located. So this is, again, dating from a very early period, the, um, before the birth of Christ. You have what some people would argue, Abiel Rochwald, amongst others, would argue, and Adrian Hastings, a kind of template for a connection between a people and a territory, which is very important. So, and then finally you have, remember when we talked about the definition of an ethnic group as having a myth of common origin, genealogical origin, and here too we have in the Old Testament a myth of common origin, descent from Abraham and the 12 tribes of Israel. So that too, so here we have all the components that we need for ethnicity. We have territory, homeland, and myth of genealogical origin. In addition to that, we have a divine sanction, this idea of the Israelites as a chosen people. Now, it's been pointed out that as we move in Christianity, as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament in Christianity, 
the emphasis is more on the kind of universalist aspect. So there's a phrase uh, in the New Testament, uh, there shall be neither Jew nor Greek in, in Christ. And this is kind of associated with the early period of Christianity under Paul, where the church is now starting to be based in Rome and has a, a sort of aspiration to uh, to rule over all of Europe. So it has kind of a universal aspiration. And if you're going to have a universal aspiration, you can't be talking about each particular chosen people. So that idea of universality, then, is important in, um, in the New Testament. And in, according to uh, Connor Cruz O'Brien, who's a quite influential writer um, who wrote the, the book God Land, looking at this relationship between Christianity and nationalism. He argues that the, the national idea, which is very strongly there in the Old Testament, as referring to the Israelites, gets, in his words, spiritualized out of existence, and you get a reversal. So now, religion, uh, Christianity, is opposing nationalism. Well, we'll see in a minute. It's not quite that simple. Uh, the Old Testament hasn't gone away. It's still there. And um, even the New Testament has got important passages that were connected to nationalism. Just to say a little bit more about the Old Testament, however, because with the Protestant Reformation, what O'Brien tells us is that there's a return to looking at the Old Testament. For, uh, so there's a move away from the New Testament to the Old Testament, which brings in some of these ideas about uh, divine election of particular chosen peoples um, who have a, a covenant. That is, they have a, a contract, if you like, that they're bound by to advance God's law. So this idea of chosen people promised by God a holy land. Uh, and interestingly, you have in the Old Testament mention of people such as the Canaanites who are inhabiting the chosen, uh, sorry, uh, the, the promised land. And therefore, the Israelites are sanctioned to evict them. So that is an important ex uh, exemplar as well, a way of connecting religion and nationalism. So some of the Old Testament Protestant peoples, um, the Afrikaners, the Ulster Protestants, and in the 16th and 17th century, the Dutch and English, who were also quite Calvinist in their religion, tended to revive some of these ideas about divine election and being chosen peoples. Uh, in some cases, if they were in frontier lands, the idea also was of being tested in the wilderness, just as the ancient Israelites were tested in the land of Canaan. So they're drawing analogies and metaphors from the Old Testament to apply to their own situation. So the situation of the American settlers on the frontier, the early frontier, with hostile native Indians, for example, or raised by the Spanish and the French, this was seen as this idea of the chosen people in the wilderness. Or uh, for Connors, um, the Dutch against the Spanish, uh, these are all potential, or, or the Ulster Protestants with the uh, native Irish Catholics. And so these, they used metaphors of uh, covenantal, what's known as covenantal nationalism. If you look at, again, Abiel Rochwold's book on the endurance of nationalism, or Adrian Hastings, or even Anthony Smith's later work on chosen peoples, talks about this. Uh, does this exist today? In, you can find it in certain places, this kind of Protestant covenantal nationalism. Uh, I've picked out a couple of, of quotes which might be interesting. One is from the uh, Reverend Martin Smith, who is the um, Belfast County Grandmaster of the Orange Order, later becomes 
Grandmaster. Um, I believe he became Grandmaster of the Orange Order. Uh, so Smith was talking about the Orange Order and whether it would defy a parade ban in 1970. And he talks about these, really, these ideas about God and chosenness and whether it's the right decision to break the parade ban <coughs> with reference to what, whether God would sort of sanction this. So this idea of uh, a divine sanction for nationalism still exists in some quarters, even in the 20th century, or more radically, uh, the Reverend Pat Robertson in the US talking about this idea of um, you know, how, because the US has sort of opened the door to so-called pagans and abortionists and feminists, gays and lesbians, basically, uh, become a liberal country, this is one of the reasons they were punished for the 9-11 attacks. So this is a kind of, a, what he said is basically that God has protected the United States since the War of 1812. This notion of being somehow a chosen nation doing God's work then, because it sort of committed sins has been punished. So these kind of ideas of religion and nationalism uh, noticeable even in the 20th century in, in Protestant contexts. Well, what about, so, so that's, I've talked quite a bit about the Old Testament and divine election, this idea of being a chosen people, but what about the more universal religions like the New Testament, Christianity, um, Islam, what about these sorts of religions and to what extent do they, do they cut against, are they just anti-nationalism or are they also in some senses reinforcing the idea of nationalism? Uh, and here, with the more universal proselytizing religions, their relationship to nationalism is different. Where they reinforce nationalism, it's as the idea of uh, a missionary nation. So the, the nation is not chosen by God, but what it does is by advancing the religion, it does God's work. So on, it's a missionary on behalf of spreading the faith. So the idea here is that one particular group is favored by God as the agent for spreading the universal religion. So it's not that they're chosen to evict and destroy other peoples, but rather they're, cho they're the chosen ones to convert uh, other peoples to their religion. And this is what Rochewald would call missionary nationalism, Krishan Kumar as well. This idea that a particular people is a missionary for the religion. So it's not anti the religion, it's not anti-nationalist, it's, it's, and so this is where some of the concepts of holy war come in, concepts of crusade or jihad, which are roughly analogous, or the idea of holy warriors, anti-morale in the Christian tradition, or Ghazi in the Muslim tradition. John Armstrong is, is quite good on some of this and how it plays out in the Middle Ages in many Christian and Muslim kingdoms that were fighting each other. Well, what about, if, just moving for a second to uh, some other religions, I think if we, if we go outside the Abrahamic tradition, uh, so for example, Hinduism, we see there that actually there's nothing especially in the religion that lends itself easily to, to nationalism. But what happens is that nationalists reinterpret the Hindu tradition in a nationalist direction. So they get the idea of nationalism largely from sort of secular romantic Western sources, and then they try and apply it to, let's take a religion like Hinduism. So what they do is they reinterpret the meaning of particular gods or rituals. Uh, so what were once just ethical, 
precepts uh, about right and wrong or morality, so on, uh, become reinterpreted uh, in order to provide a, a foundation for a political plan of action program. So for example, something such as a religious ritual, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Ganesh Chaturthi, Chaturthi uh, in Hinduism, which might have just been undertaken as an annual ritual, now becomes an a basis for identity. So by performing that ritual in public, you send a message to the non-Hindus, typically Muslim, sometimes Christian, that this, this becomes an expression of nationalism, an expression of the dominant culture of India. Uh, so devotional rituals then become expressions of national identity. So it's, so it's a change in the meaning of that ritual. Or gods, such as Kali and Krishna, are reinterpreted as being not just gods performing acts in stories, but as exemplars of Hindu masculinity and, and martial virtue, warrior virtue, so symbols of Hindu nationalism. Uh, likewise, the term Aryavarta, uh, land of Hindus, which appears in the, um, in, in the Hinduism, in Hinduism and the Vedas, is reinterpreted in such a way that it corresponds more closely to the present day boundaries of modern India. So it's a way of kind of retooling religion to legitimate and reinforce the nation. And so you have kinds of fusion of different aspects of Hinduism, different gods who exemplify certain virtues that nationalists want to promote, such as um, the warrior ethos and so on, are brought together. Uh, and here's just a, a quote that suggests how um, how there's a selection effect. So it's a matter of sifting and selecting through the religious text to find exemplars. And so here they say it's not the image of the trident-wielding Shiva or the regal Vishnu or the generalissimo Kartikeya, um, but the lion-riding Chandi that inspired the Hindus and kindled the depth of feeling for their motherland. The argument of modernists here would be that, well, it's... It's the imperatives of modern nationalism that are really driving this. There's nothing in the religion itself that would lend itself to nationalism. And I think there's a very good case for that in the case of Hinduism, whereas we saw in the case of Judaism, and to a lesser extent, Christianity and Islam, you have a, a much stronger basis for talking about uh, sacred sources for ethnicity and nationalism, whereas for Hinduism, it's very difficult to find that. It's more a case that you really have to work on the, the religious material to come up with what you want. Uh, moving sort of from that modernist example to a more ethno-symbolist <coughs> one, um, a lot of ethno-symbolist writers, such as Adrian Hastings or John Armstrong or Anthony Smith, will point to the religious origins of ethnicity. That is, that uh, the early origins of ethnic groups lie in religion. So, for example, many uh, ethnic groups will trace their of origin to when a particular king uh, or cleric have to be, or leader have to be converted to Christianity or some other religion. So, for example, St. Stephen in Hungary, or the Poles date their founding to 966 Mishko in Poland. This idea of um, the connection between conversion to a religion and the birth of an ethnic group. Uh, 
It's also the case that, as Armstrong points out, a lot of uh, ethnic groups develop their, their key myths of origin or their, their critical, um, a lot of their critical myths and heroes emerge from what were religious conflicts. So the Serbs' Battle of Kosovo in 1389 with the Ottoman Empire against the Orthodox, that, was, that is kind of seen as a key moment in the history of the Serbs. A lot of groups do have this idea of myths of fighting against the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, particularly in southern and eastern Europe. We can see that with the Italians, Hungarians, Ukrainians, Serbs, and so on. I've just listed a bunch here, this idea of critical battles where they're seen to be in some way defending a wider cause, defending the cause of Christianity against the Turkish uh, invasion of the Ottoman Turks. Uh, but we have the same theme in other cases. So the Sinhalese have this concept of themselves as a Buddhist island in a sea of Hinduism and to some extent Islam and that therefore um, they are defenders also of the integrity of Buddhism, not just of themselves as Sinhalese. So too with uh, a number of Muslim groups, the idea of the Arabs and Turks as missionary nationalists, spreaders of the faith uh, through conquest, or on the other hand, sometimes as defenders of the faith against conquerors, crusaders, Mongols, others that are coming to take Muslim lands. Um, so that connection then between religion and nationalism. A few examples of this missionary nationalism as it operated arguably before even the French Revolution. So the idea that France, you know, France before the French Revolution had this idea that it was the, quote, eldest daughter of the church. What that meant was that it was the most important state uh, for the Roman Catholic Church. And therefore, it is the sort of first amongst equals. This idea of being first amongst, yes, we're all Catholics, but uh, in the Counter-Reformation, we, the French, are the leading power. So we're the eldest daughter of the church. That idea of being a missionary for the Catholic religion against the Protestants. Uh, so religion, nationalism, reinforcing each other. Uh, the American idea of manifest destiny of being a new Israel. Also, connecting themes of religion, doing God's work on earth, that sort of idea. It's not exactly the same thing as, I mean, at, at times it sort of goes in the direction of that covenantal Israelite Old Testament type nationalism. But at other times it's more just kind of missionary nationalism of spreading Christianity. Um, with other sort of some of the other large empires or states also had this idea of the Russian Empire as a missionary for Tsarist, uh, sorry, for orthodoxy, uh, just as the later USSR was a missionary for communism. Now, communism not, strictly speaking, a religion, but it had some quasi-religious aspects. So in both cases, the particular state said, well, we're not selfish, we're not just Russians, we're, we're doing this for a bigger, wider cause of orthodox Christianity, or we're not just... Russians were doing this for the wider cause of socialism. Uh, and that's a very important rhetorical, a, a, a very important way of legitimating your nationalist cause. Likewise with the Ottoman Empire and Islam, or the British Empire and Protestantism. In, in, now it's perhaps less important for, for Britain, but there are those who would argue that at least in its early phases in the 18th century and into the at least to the middle of the 19th century, Protestantism was very important for the British Empire as well. Um, 
Can we see examples of this kind of missionary nationalism today? Just a couple of cases which will be important for you as you look at the Middle East uh, and Islam. One is that I've picked out here are the Palestinians with regard to, to the Temple Mount and the defense of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The way that's interpreted is, well, we're not just doing this because we're Palestinians, and, and it's not just about Palestinian nationalism. We are defending the third holiest site in Islam, so we're doing something for all of, of Islam. And so we should be appreciated for doing this. So that idea of being a missionary for a wider idea of Islam and not just the nation. Similarly, Iran, in their, in their rhetoric, some people would say, well, the Iranian revolution is just about Islam. It's not about, or, or maybe it's about Shia Islam, although the Iranians wouldn't, wouldn't say it's about Shia Islam. They'd say, well, it's actually about a version of Islamism. Um, but you can still interpret what the Iranians are doing as nationalism, because if you see that what Iran is doing is promoting itself as the missionary for Islam. So they're saying, we the Iranians are the best or doing the most important work for Islam of all the Muslim nations. In other words, um, the, the, the prestige accrues to us as Iran, not as to everybody as Muslims, but actually to us as, as Iranians. So in that sense, yeah. Does, does Saudi also fall into that category? Yes, yes, they would. Yeah, the Saudi Arabia, yeah. As a counter to Iran, it's a sort of Sunni missionary center of the world. Yes, I mean, they would. I guess what I'd say is that they're, they're kind of rivals. And I wouldn't, I, if you think about Iran and Saudi Arabia, or even Pakistan, um, I guess I would, I would see them as nationalisms. I wouldn't see them just as promoting religion. The religion, the, the rhetoric and the legitimation is that, well, we're defending Islam or we're promoting Islam. Uh, and so we're actually unselfish. But you can see it as a kind of symbolic nationalism because, well, we're promoting it, but you should be thankful to us and we're actually not first amongst equals. We are the best promoter uh, of Islam. Or, or the Pashtuns in Afghanistan, we are the best Muslims in Afghanistan. The others are Muslims, but we're the best Muslims. So it's still about national prestige. Uh, it's not just about the religion. And that's the connection, maybe. I ho hopefully you can see that connection. Uh, I'm just going to skip this second point because we've got much time. Okay. So, again, to return to holy text and to look at Islam, and you know, there is a question that could be asked, just as you might say in the Old Testament, there is clear reference to a chosen people that links ethnicity to religion. You might argue that there is a link in Islam between the Arabs and Islam. That is, that there is there are passages that could be interpreted in Islam to reinforce Arab nationalism. So for example, there are passages that say that um, we've made it a Quran in Arabic that you may be able to understand, and, and messenger to teach in the language of his own people. In other words, there are passages that privilege Arabic or the Arabs, uh, just perhaps as in uh, the Old Testament, the passages privilege the Israelites. Now, of course, there are other passages that say the reverse, which we'll come to in a minute. But what's important is this idea that there are references to peoples and ethnic groups and nations in the text, which can be interpreted 
to reinforce uh, the nation. Now, there, I've talked about religious texts quite a bit. I'll just move to look in, at situations where really religion is kind of faded uh, in terms of being an active force. That is, you don't have a lot of people going to church aren't very religious. But religion still matters because it is a marker of ethnicity. So I, I have a few pictures here of some, some of you may be familiar with what's called the old firm rivalry in football between Celtic and Rangers in Glasgow. Celtic is, they're, they're in green, and that represents the Catholic, the Irish Catholic team in Glasgow. And this dates back to the immigration of Irish into Glasgow. I mean, the, uh, the people of Irish origin are about, as, I think, between a quarter and a third of the population of Glasgow. The Catholic team then borrows a lot of colors from Irish Catholic nationalism, and the Protestant team is in the sort of red, white, and blue colors of, of the British uh, flag. So this idea of religion. So the Protestant team, the question we might ask is, how, what is the relationship between um, Protestantism and this kind of ethnic conflict between, say, British Protestant, Irish Catholic? Well, it's not the case that these people are arguing about the meaning of the Trinity and transubstantiation and the infallibility of the Pope and these theological principles that differentiate Protestants from Catholic. They'd have no idea about any of that stuff. So it's not really about the same questions that uh, Protestants and Catholics were fighting about in the 1600s in the War of Religion. This is something very different. What this is about is Protestantism purely as a symbol of ethnicity. So we are, we call ourselves Protestants. What that really means is we're from the British ethnic group descended from um, Scots uh, in this case. Whereas this symbolism is this idea of being Catholic, all that, what that really signifies is, well, we're actually of Irish Catholic descent, Irish descent. So it's just a marker. It's nothing more than a marker. It's not substantial. It's not about holy texts or any of that stuff. It's just a marker that distinguishes one group from another. And we see that kind of use of religion as a marker of difference. So you need to have, if you go back to the definition of an ethnic group, you have to have some, something to tell you apart from the other group, or else the groups will just be able to mix and you won't know who's a member. And so it's typically down to language or religion or skin color or dress or something or accent. These are all different ways in which you can have markers. So religion can serve, even if the people have lost their religiosity, it can still serve as an important marker. Uh, and that was also the case in the former Yugoslavia between the uh, Croats, the Serb Orthodox, and the Bosnian Muslims. I mean, there was very limited religiosity in that society. But those particular religions served as symbols, uh, which differentiated the group. It's important that we contrast the case of this case, where actually there is a link between religion and ethnicity. So, or in Northern Ireland, if you're Catholic, that tells us something about your ethnic origin because you see yourself as native Irish origin, whereas if you're Protestant, you see yourself as Scottish or English, British in your background, in your ancestry. Whereas in Germany, uh, for example, or in Holland, being Catholic or Protestant doesn't indicate anything about your ethnicity because you can be Protestant German or Catholic German. Whereas in Northern Ireland, you can't 
it's very difficult to say I'm Catholic and British or Protestant and Irish. It's very tricky. The, the two kind of are connected to myths of genealogical descent. So that's a difference. But also in, in the Republic, it is possible that a lot of uh, people call themselves Irish, even if they're Protestants. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky, though. I mean, I think for, a, for a, a while, those people who were Protestant called them, thought of themselves more as British. But now, I think they do think of themselves as Irish. You're right. But in the North, that wouldn't be the case. So, no, but but the, you're right, yeah. Just you the are. Contrast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, but it's a very different type of use of religion. It's more sort of use of religion as a marker rather than this idea of chosen mission, chosenness, missionary nationalism, divine election, and so on. Okay. So we've talked then about religious texts. We've talked about religion as just a marker. The third way religion can actually get involved in ethnicity and nationalism is through the participation of clergymen as nationalist leaders uh, and the part and the use of religious places of worship uh, for mobilization so for nationalist mobilization so for example in a society oftentimes the church or the mosque or the religious house the temple is one of the places where large numbers of people gather so it's a very good place if you're going to start a nationalist movement say an independence movement and you have large numbers of people gathering in these spaces, it's a good place to go to try and recruit for rebel movements or for political parties that are in favor of independence. So in a way, because it's a place where people can gather, uh, in, in, and, and for ethno-symbolists, they would say, well, prior to the modern period, uh, religion served the function that the mass media and civil society serves in the modern period. So you don't need to have print capital and the things that Benedict Anderson would say you need. You don't need the state. You don't necessarily need capitalism because you had religion and you had mass mobilization through religion. So that was a way in which information could flow without uh, newspapers and without print capitalism. It could flow through word of mouth, through uh, the priests, and so on. Uh, there's also, so, so this idea then that, is that religion can spread the message of being, that everybody is a member of an ethnic group, so we're all part of the same people with a distinct origin. That message can be spread even in the absence of uh, print capital and the state. So that's an important point that ethno-symbolists make, although it's disputed by others. Uh, also, it's the case that religious institutions like churches can keep ethnic traditions alive. So it might be the liturgy of the Orthodox Church in Serbia keeping alive the memory of 1389. Uh, or it might be or the, the relics of martyrs that are retained, relics of sort of nationalist martyrs were retained in the churches. So that is another way in which religion can reinforce uh, ethnicity, nationhood. Um, I'm actually going to skip this bit. But I, what I'm interested in here, this is from Sri Lanka, and this is in, in the context of Buddhism. I think Buddhism, like Hinduism, is not a religion that easily lends itself to, to or certainly doesn't give birth to nationalism, but can easily be reinterpreted in such a way that it can reinforce nationalism. So. 
what the Sinhalese have done is they've styled their island uh, Damadipa. So it's the repository of the Buddha's teachings, and it's, an, it's the island repository of the Buddha's teaching. Sounds purely universal or religious, but you can see how it can be used to oppose others that are seeking to attack that sacred space. How then do the Buddhists get around the idea of nonviolence that is there in, in Buddhism? This idea that killing is against the Buddhist ideal of nonviolence. Well, the argument is, well, yes, it is. A, killing is against uh, the religion, except when you're dealing with those who don't share the religion. So that is the way that, <laughs> that, that this is surmounted. And so, for example, there's a passage here that says, um, <coughs> There was an attack that took place in which the Buddhists killed a bunch of Hindus. And they, they say, well, only one and a half human beings have been killed. One of them uh, had basically converted to Buddhism, and one had sort of gone part way. So you have one and a half that were killed. The rest, unbelievers and men of evil life were the rest. So, <laughs> so this is just to say that, I mean, a modernist would, would look at this and say, well, look, this shows that uh, what's really driving this are political imperatives, and that can shape interpretations of culture. So culture is kind of secondary, doesn't drive uh, nationalism. Interesting point. Looking historically at, then at the role of the clergy and priests, how important has it been? Uh, I think you can say that in certain situations, the clerics have been very important. I, I talked about this idea as a uh, of the priesthood as connecting um, the community to wider ideas, such as the consciousness of being part of an ethnic group. And to that extent, they are important. Uh, the other ways in which religious clerics can, the way ways clerics can advance ethnicity and nationhood is by acting as chroniclers of the history of a particular group. So they can document the history of a group. Sometimes, as in the case of missionaries in Africa, they can help with, even with the creation of groups like the Yoruba in codifying dictionaries, uh, translating the Bible into local languages, which then become written down and then become the basis of identity. So in that way, too, uh, religious missionaries can be involved very intimately in the formation of new ethnic groups and, and identities. One argument that sometimes made with respect to religion as well. Religions are universal. They have a sacred center, such as Constantinople, or Rome, or Mecca, or whatnot. Uh, and, and in that sense, therefore, they don't have a sense of territoriality. So they're universal. They have a hierarchy. Let's say in Rome, you have the pope, and then you have various provinces. Or um, The Orthodox Church might have its center in Constantinople, or, or Istanbul later. Uh, and so they don't have this sense of being nations. but Importantly, in all these religions, there are provincial jurisdictions. So in the Orthodox Church, you had a, uh, a patriarchate for the Serbs and the Romanians and, and so on. So you have these different provincial jurisdictions run by lower-ranking clergymen. So not people in Rome, but maybe people in Ireland. The clerics in Ireland might think of themselves not purely as Roman Catholic, but also as Irish Roman Catholic. So the provincial it's those lesser clergy, provincial level, that are most important for nationalism. Uh, so it would be, say, the Irish Catholic clergy under the British, or the Polish Catholic clergy under communism or under the 
Russian Empire play this role of um, serving as a prop of nationalism. So in both cases, in the Irish and the Polish case, you can have Catholic priests taking an important role in resisting uh, foreign occupation or as in developing nationalist resistance. Sometimes you have a situation where some leaders, some religious leaders are co-opted into the regime and in other cases where they resist. So with the Orthodox Church, actually it was the case that the Greek, uh, the Orthodox leadership, the elites of the Orthodox Church in Istanbul were quite happy to, to exist within the Ottoman Empire. It was more the lesser clergy like the Serb Orthodox Patriarchate that were resisting the Ottoman Empire. And so you get different responses to, to nationalism. Um, and in some cases, as with we talked about the Armenian diaspora, where the Armenian church actually becomes absolute, absolutely central for Armenian nationalism. So th those are just some ways in which religion, religious texts, we talked about religious texts, religion as marker, and religious clerics and meeting places, those, those are ways in which it can reinforce nationalism. I don't want to suggest that religion always reinforces nationalism. It's also possible for religion to oppose nationalism. And there are many historical examples of this. Uh, and it can be based on particular passages. So the idea of um, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. In other words, uh, politics should be politics. Religion should be religion. The two should not be linked together. That passage would suggest that you shouldn't blend religion with nationalism. Likewise, in Islam, there are many passages like this. Uh, one of which is very colorful, talks about people should give up their pride in nations uh, because this is a coal from the coals of hellfire, and so on. Uh, and th so this idea of uh, tribalism and nationalism as being contrary to the wishes of uh, a religion being opposed by religion. So you could find a basis in the holy texts for this claim that uh, nationalism and religion should not go together. There's also, historically, many instances of where um, nationalism has emerged in opposition to the established religious order. So if you think of the French Revolution, the French Revolution was about the French nation throwing off the king who was backed by the church. The church is clearly, and, and the priests clearly, are therefore going to oppose French nationalism. So the French nationalism, the nationalism of many Catholic countries, Italian, uh, Belgian, French, uh, I'm trying to think of some other examples, in Europe, was often anti-clerical against the church explicitly. Liberal nationalisms against the church. Why? Well, because the church reinforced the old order, the old aristocratic or monarchical order. So in that sense, the, um, the nationalists were secular nationalists opposing what they saw as the old hierarchy. Uh, and so the source of nationalism cannot be the church, cannot be religion, and it's typically uh, secular intellectuals um, who are opposed to religion and who are influenced by the idea of the Enlightenment. The French Revolution is a classic example. It's the secular Enlightenment that influences them, uh, or in some cases, the romantic secular ideas. And this is so much the case that some writers, including Anthony Smith at one point, uh, said, well, it's, a, it's useful to think of nationalism as a surrogate uh, religion, as a replacement religion. 
so as religion kind of dies or, or as religion gives way to secularism, nationalism rises in its place. And that was the point that Durkheim makes that a lot of the rituals and festivals that took place in the French Revolution, which were totally secular, but actually their form was modeled on religious uh, festivals and rituals. And so in that way, um, the French Revolution kind of a secularized religion. So the, in, in that sense, we can think of nationalism as opposing religion, as replacing religion. So there we don't have anything like the kind of religious nationalism that we see in the Irish and Polish Catholic case, for example. Um, also, Smith makes the argument that with ethnicity and the nation, it's fulfilling a lot of the same functions that religion did. So this idea of having an afterlife. Well, with uh, an ethnic group or, or the nation, you can imagine that even if you as an individual die in battle, you die to benefit your people, your nation, which will live on beyond your particular lifetime. Just as this, this idea of the concept of the afterlife or heaven religion allows you to think of yourself as living on beyond your death, so too with, with ethnicity and nationalism. It allows you that kind of continuity, um, a way that, of thinking you're part of something bigger than just your own life, which explains perhaps the willingness to sacrifice for the nation just as you have the willingness to sacrifice for religion. Um, so you're, as an individual, con contributing to the glory of the nation. Um, uh, so, so I talked then as uh, one example of this anti-nationalism was the, um, the French Revolution, the Catholic anti-nationalism of the Italian nationalists who uh, yeah. were opposed to the Pope and the Vatican uh, quite explicitly, in fact, to the point of occupation of, the, of Rome. Um, so we can clearly see in the case of Catholic anti-nationalism um, that in many cases religion can oppose nationalism. So the Pope was very much opposed to the idea of the Italian nation, didn't recognize the Vatican, and the supporters of Catholicism did not recognize it, the Italian nation until really there was a, a deal between Mussolini and the church in the 1930s. Arguably, it wasn't until that period. Uh, likewise, in Spain, with Franco, the dictator Franco, it wasn't really until that period that the Catholic church agrees and says, well, OK, we'll recognize the idea of the nation. So the religious authorities, particularly when they were associated with the old order, Remember that old order was, was not nationalist. It was aristocratic and monarchical. Um, and particularly in those situations, <coughs> the clergy oppose nationalism. But we but recall that in other cases, the clergy are in the forefront of nationalism. It's worth noting that the clergy that oppose nationalism in places like France or Italy, that they're often uh, Either it's, it's Rome, it's the center of the hierarchy, or it's those that look to Rome that are opposing nationalism. Whereas in the case of Ireland and Poland, these are provincial or lesser clerics uh, who see themselves um, as Irish and Polish, and not just as Catholic. You can see something analogous in Judaism with the Orthodox Jews. Uh, this has changed somewhat, so it might not be as clear as right now, but it, at the time of the creation of the state of Israel, a lot of the Orthodox Jewish rabbis were quite opposed to 
Zionism. Because their view was, it says in the holy text that the promised land will be delivered, uh, but it's a promised land in the other world, not in this world. And actually, it's uh, going against the religion. It's kind of uh, heretical to try and create uh, an Israel, a promised land in this world. So they actually opposed this because they felt that this was going to delay the coming uh, and therefore the Messiah and therefore the, the emergence of um, the promised land and the Jews going to the promised land. So you have this kind of anti-nationalism. It's in fact the case that the, uh, the Orthodox, there were Orthodox Jews who were lobbying the great powers not to, to create a state of Israel, not to recognize the state of Israel. Um, and so in order to, actually it's an interesting story, because in order to buy them off, what the state of Israel did was said, okay, well, we'll allow you to have power over marriages and burials and um, conversions and various other powers within the state. We'll give you exemptions from the draft and trying to basically prevent them from scuppering this uh, Zionist project. So it's quite, Zionism was really a movement that was opposed to uh, religion because they said, well, the reason the Jews were slaughtered in World War II and you know, the reason the Jews don't have their own state is because of this, these rabbis who basically kept us um, ignorant and, and, and basically had people just uh, studying the Torah and not doing anything practical. What we need to do is actually take charge, learn from uh, the nationalism of the Europeans and actually um, embark on the secular project. So really Zionism was a very secular type of nationalism. It's only in sort of more recent years that religious nationalism has become more important. But originally, uh, Orthodox Juda Judaism was quite anti-nationalist. And there still are particular groups that maintain this theological stance. Okay. It's true also in Islam as well, and you might come to that in some of the sections later in the course. Uh, if you look at the relationship between the Muslim clerics and nationalists, so Arab nationalism, Turkish nationalism, Persian nationalism, most of those nationalist movements in the Muslim world were relatively secular, or, or in fact overtly secular. Um, if you think of the Shah in Iran, if you think of Ataturk in Turkey, if you think of uh, many of the regimes, the Ba'ath Party in Syria, in Iraq, a lot of these uh, movements were quite anti-religion, uh, anti anti the established clergy. So they were very similar to the kind of nationalism that took place in Catholic Europe or with Zionism, this idea of an anti, um, a secular nationalism. Just in terms of looking at divisions within religion, though, it's important to not just to look at the religious centers, but also these provincial jurisdictions uh, the study, I think a study by Miroslav Frock looking at Central and Eastern European nationalist movements finds that there was participation in some cases by uh, lower level provincial clergy. Protestant clergy in Europe, like in places like Slovakia and Hungary, in the Czech Republic, those um, Protestant clergy were more involved in nationalism than the Catholic ones. Why? Well, maybe because Catholicism has this idea of universality and the hierarchy, whereas Protestantism was more amenable to nationalism because it was more about this, each jurisdiction having its own uh, authority. Um, 
a little more about this idea of Islamic anti-nationalism. Looking at the history of Islam and the history of Christianity, there is a slight difference in that the Muslim empires tended to be more successful uh, in taking larger amounts of territory. So you did have particular periods in history where there were quite large Muslim empires that ruled over Arabic speakers and, and Turkish and, and Persian speakers and so on. Uh, whereas in Europe, you tended to more you tended more to get these kingdoms that were broken down on linguistic lines, which formed the basis of subsequent nations. Uh, there are therefore there is therefore precedent for this idea of um, Darul Islam or Caliphate, or these ideas of that link religion to territory, uh, in a way that is ostensibly not about nationalism. And so that's quite interesting that there is a kind of template in Muslim history for this sort of transnational or transethnic kind of polity. And that's very heavily debated within uh, Islamist circles, this idea of whether you can have a caliphate or you can have a, a religious realm. Whereas in Christianity, the idea of Christendom more or less fades, um, you know, it fades with the failure of the pope. Uh, to achieve domination through either the Holy Roman Empire or later through the Habsburg Empire. I mean, was, there were still dreams. The papacy still dreamed of ruling over Europe, but that kind of fades, um, certainly by the 17th century. Whereas in Islam, it continues with the idea of the Ottoman Empire and the Caliphate, although Ataturk uh, abolishes the Caliphate in 1924. Um, there is a strand in political Islam that, that, that would say that the nation state is a Western import that divides the Umayyad and is, is preventing the emergence of this kind of a, a territorial religious realm of Darul Islam or the Caliphate. Uh, and that, the, that the, na the nation is a kind of a secular ma creation of mankind, a kind of an idol. Um, but it's also worth saying that in other cases, Islam and Islamism uh, are yoked to nationalist movements, reinforce nationalism. Um, so anywhere you have a struggle that is not only a struggle between religions, but also between groups that have different languages, different nations. Uh, so it might be Palestine, Kashmir, Chechnya, southern Philippines, all of these areas where you have ethnic conflict that divides a, a Muslim group from a non-Muslim group. There, too, you can have a, a blending of Islamism with, um, with nationalism. Or in Afghanistan. The Taliban are not just a religious movement, but they can be seen as a Pashtun, a Pashtun ethnic movement as well. And so it's important to sort of be attentive to where these two things can be running together. Uh, last slide. Um, and this is, you know, what is the connection between ethnic or nationalist violence and religion? Are, there was a claim by Samuel Huntington in his book, Clash of Civilizations, that wars that are fought on religious fault lines. So if you think of Chechnya, you've got an Islamic, a Muslim group, the Chechens against the Christian group, the Russians. That kind of an ethnic conflict, Huntington would predict to be bloodier and more violent than something like, um, I don't know, the Basques against the Spanish or the Irish Catholics against the Irish Protestants, where there isn't really a serious civilizational uh, religious divide. Um, actually, empirical work shows that there is no real uh, difference between those types of ethnic conflicts. So you have um, ethnic conflicts are just as bloody between groups that have the same religion, like in Rwanda, as where they have different religion. It doesn't seem to be a relationship. But 
there are cases where sometimes religion dampens ethnic conflict as well, and ethnic violence. And I've just listed a few cases where one could make, you could make the argument that in the new world in the Spanish colonies, the uh, Spanish missionaries did restrain some of the violence that went with the conquistadors. Likewise, the genocide in Southwest Africa. German settlers that were carrying out the genocide, the missionaries were lobbying for some of this to be stopped and trying to restrain them. So too in Northern Ireland, the most violent elements on both sides were the most secular elements, whereas the Catholic Church and the Protestant clerics in the Orange Order were relatively uh, important in at least trying to restrain members of their own communities from engaging in violence. So they, these are, you know, it's not the case that religion automatically leads to more violence, but it certainly can lead to, to violence because groups might say, well, we are the chosen, we have the right to rule.